are starting in Revelation chapter 7 tonight. Revelation chapter 7. We'll review just a little bit and then, uh, and then pick up where we were on Sunday. I don't want to review the whole uh, book from this point forward. I'll do some of the introduction, but mostly I want to start around chapter 4 because that's where John really starts to see the apocalyptic visions that carry out through the remainder of the book. But the book is a revealing, right? The word apocalypsis, which is translated revelation, it means revealing. And the reason it's named that is because what God was revealing to the first century Christians, the, the Christians at the end of the first century, was uh, what was going to happen to them at the hands of Rome and then what was going to happen to Rome as a result of their uh, rejection of God. It's written in signs, and we know a sign cannot represent itself. So how do we figure out what it does represent? Sometimes we read in the text, and in the very text of Revelation, it'll tell us what a sign means. What else? References with the, especially the prophets, but throughout the Old Testament, you hear a lot of references to the same type of language. And if you figure out what it meant in the Old Testament, then you can figure out better what it means in the book of Revelation. Was there anything else? How about the context and culture? Keeping it in its first century culture? Uh, because if you don't keep it in that time frame, then you miss the point that was... I mean, there were, John was recording this for a purpose, right? And it meant something to those who would be the recipients of it. So you've got to keep it in that context or that culture. Uh, he's writing it about A.D. 96 to 98. And the whole overall theme of the book is what? God wins. You've got to keep that in your head as you're going through it because the overall picture and then some of the smaller pictures are more important than the individual details. You get sidetracked by some of these small signs that, and you miss the point of the book, then you, uh, you've missed what God's trying to say. Okay, so uh, uh, the first three chapters are an introduction and the letters specifically dictated to or spoken to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Chapter 4 begins the uh, actual apocalyptic visions and what is the first What is chapter 4 about? What? I think I heard the right answer, but I'm old and deaf. God is still on his throne, right? So no matter what it looks like at at their time with Rome and Rome's power and Rome's persecution and all of that, God's still in charge and he's worthy of worship. What was chapter 5? They are worshiping still at the throne of God there, but there's something significant about the events of chapter 5. There's a scroll. What? There was only one worthy to open it, and that was the Lamb of God, and he was worthy because of what he sacrificed, right? And the conquering of death. So the Lamb, who is the Messiah, is also worthy of worship. So the Father's worthy of worship and still on his throne, chapter 4. The, the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll is also worthy of worship, chapter 5. Now when he starts opening those seals in chapter 6, what was the point of all that? What was the message? What were they about? Well, that's where we stopped. The seals were what was going to start happening to the church. You know, we, we understand that the book of Revelation as an overall book is about a destruction or a judgment on Rome. But these seals are not about Rome. These seals are about the church. 
So you get in chapters 2 and 3 the internal problems that were happening in the church, yet when you start in chapter 6, as Jesus starts to unlock these seals, what you get is here's the external things that are happening to the church. And you start to see, uh, you know, the first thing he shows, and this is the future. That's what's in this seal, the future of what was going to occur. And so he opens these seals. In the first seal, the gospel is going to go out further. Well, the result of that is the next seal. People are going to start persecuting them more, right? And so these seals represent what is continuing to happen as it relates to the relationship with the persecution that's coming from Rome against the church. Now, when he finishes the sixth seal, and actually the fifth seal, the fifth seal has these these, uh, souls that are under the altar and they're crying out, how long? How long is it going to be before you avenge us? When he opens the sixth seal, he starts talking about judgment now. Now God is saying, you know, judgment is going to come on Rome, and this is an overall view of that. And so the end result of that statement about the judgment of God on Rome is, who can make it through that? That's the end of chapter 6. Who can possibly endure? There is a pause between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. The seventh seal is going to reveal to us the next set of sevens, which is the trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet will reveal the next set of sevens, which is the uh, bowls of God's wrath. So between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's a pause. And that pause or that parentheses or whatever, which is chapter 7, is an answer to the question of the end of chapter 6 and the sixth seal, which is who can make it? If God's bringing this upon Rome, if Rome's going to collapse like this, then who can possibly endure that? Well, chapter 7, God answers the question. Now, a couple of things we talked about on Sunday as we started through this that I want to highlight uh, in review before we... Uh, we, we pick up reading again. One of them is uh, this, this account in the early part, especially of chapter 7, comes from uh, a similar event that happened in Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, what was happening is Jerusalem was about to be judged or punished. And before they were punished, what God did is he sent a messenger through the city and he put a big X on everybody's forehead who was faithful to God. Now, that wasn't literal, right? I mean, it wasn't a guy walking around with a sharpie putting X's on people's heads. But it was a mark to identify the fact that God knows the people who belong to him, right? So as you get into chapter 7, in answer to the question at the end of chapter 6 about who can stand is, God knows the answer, who belongs to him. And so they have this symbolic mark that is given to them in the early part of chapter 7. And there are two groups that we see in chapter 7. The first group is on the earth dealing with all of this. And the second group is before the throne of God, which we'll come to in the latter part of the chapter. Now let's talk about the first group and what we learned on Sunday before we read further. It's very easy to, it's very easy to miss what's happening in Revelation if you don't hang on to the point and the context. You know, so you read this and you start reading these names that you recognize, right? You recognize some of these names as tribes of Israel. And so you say, well, that's a, they're literally were tribes of Israel. But you have to remember we're dealing with an apocalyptic book. So it's got to be something else. And just in case you forget that it is something else, there are some little clues to help you catch that without even knowing what it means. Like, for example, I talked about this on Sunday. It was a trick question. Let's see if you remember it. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many? Thirteen. We say twelve, don't we? Why do we say twelve? There were twelve that had a land inheritance. There was Levi that had uh, no land inheritance, but they had cities, didn't they? Okay, but Joseph didn't have thirteen sons, or Jacob didn't have thirteen sons, did he? So how did he have thirteen that was? Because Joseph had two sons. Joseph didn't have a tribe, did he? 
But his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, did. So you get to 12 land inheritance and one. Yet when we look through this section that is listed that we'll read in just a second, not all of them are listed. And there's still 13. <laughs> yeah. Dan's one of them that's not mentioned here. And the reason Dan's not mentioned here is because Dan gave up. They gave up their inheritance. God had told them, you get this land, I'll take care of you. You pass down your land to your inheritance. They didn't do that. They left. They went north. They'd have been in the southern kingdom and lasted a lot longer if they hadn't left. So Dan's not mentioned. The other one not mentioned is Ephraim. Do you remember why we talked about that on Sunday? What'd they give them? Huh? They gave them Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the one that split the nation up, which God told him was going to happen. And even then, God gave him the opportunity to do the right thing, didn't he? And what did he choose to do? Well, he changed the law. He changed the place of worship. He changed the object of worship. He changed the priesthood. He changed everything. And following him, every king in the north that was, that was identified was named as somebody who walked in the ways of Jeroboam. Now, they also gave us Ahab, which is the worst of the worst, right? So, uh, so those two are not even mentioned here, and yet some are mentioned that are not a part of the 12 tribes, which is like Joseph. So what I know from that is, what God is telling us is not that he's looking at the literal tribes of Israel. What he's using is this picture that they understood from prophecy and everything else, and he's talking about the faithful. See, the thing is, there was a remnant in the tribes, we read about them. You remember, in, a, in Revelation, I have to refer so much to Daniel. But you remember Daniel is one of the ones who is taken captive in the first carrying away of Nebuchadnezzar by Babylon against the, the nation of Judah. And, and he goes through this captivity. But there's a remnant that's faithful throughout all of that, isn't there? And then all of a sudden you start reading about those like Ezra and Nehemiah who helped them come back home. It was a remnant, wasn't it? A faithful so what God's identifying by talking about these, these tribes here is not a literal uh, establishment of another nation on the earth. And in fact, the timing makes that impossible too in the sense of, in our context, what we're dealing with is before Rome has fallen. So if these are the literal tribes of Israel, which they're not even the same names, but if they are the literal tribes of Israel, then the restoration that he's writing about here happens before Rome falls. That was a long time ago. So it's still already passed, right? Okay, so we know it's not that. We also talked about that number on Sunday, that 144,000. And I know that seemed a little complicated, and if it's too much for you, that's okay. Uh, we came up with that number by multiplying 12 by itself. 12 is a religious number, right? And 2 is a strengthened number, right? So you have a strengthened uh, group of religious people, and we had 10 which is a complete number, right? And we had three of them, right? Which takes it even further. And so you take all those numbers, you put them together, you got 144,000. So all he's saying is, all of those who are on the earth who belong to God, he knows. He doesn't miss a one. So you're worried that God's going to forget about you? You're worried that Rome's going to, you know, have control and you're going to lose out on something? Well, God's assuring you, he knows you. He knows everybody, right? Okay, now let's pick up with those names and then we'll, we'll keep reading. Let's just start in verse 4 of chapter 7. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. What was the seal, by the way? 
Yeah, it was, a, it was a mark that acknowledged that they that, that came from God, right? It was like a seal. A king would seal a law or he would seal a message or whatever that acknowledges it's, it's his message, right? And not tampered with, that's right. Uh, let's see, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, the reason I just wanted to read that is not because you don't know the names or because I wanted to take up time or whatever. It's because I wanted to point something out. See, we, we recognize what I talked about with those numbers, about the 144,000, 10 times 10 times 10, 12 times 12. Put all that together, you get 144,000. But that complete picture, the big picture of all of those who belong to God is made up of the small pictures. And that's what he's identifying by talking about the individual groups. He's talking about the small pictures. These are people, it is still the 12. You still got a 12, right? Yet it's, and it's still the 10 with the three, the complete, these guys are completely, but the part is only a part of the whole. And the strengthening comes through the whole. So he's talking about, again, the faithful of God and how he's going to get through it. Now let's see this other group, verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I want to point out very quickly, just because it is religiously taught today that there's, by some, that there's only going to be 144,000 in heaven and the rest of us are going to be on the earth. And, of course, you just saw the number 144,000, but where were these people? They were on the earth, right? Where's the multitude? They're in heaven. They're before the throne. They're before the throne and before the Lamb. So the numbers are kind of backwards with the way people look at it, right? Okay, so we have a group now. We have the people on the earth that God knows belongs to Him. And now we have this other group that is a, a big multitude, a great multitude, that nobody could even number. So it's a bigger number, right? And they're before the throne. But we need to know who these people are. Verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. We saw them in chapter 4. Fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And again, I would point out that when they praise him like this, they always use the number 7. And what did 7 mean? It's the number of deity, isn't it? So they're just acknowledging his deity. 13. One of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who, who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. So you got this crowd, great multitude that nobody can even number. And all of a sudden, one of these elders that's around the throne, and there's 24, right? That's what we saw in chapter 4. One of these elders around the throne turns to John and says, who are these people? And John's response is, sir, you know, which is odd to me. I mean, based on what I know with the way that God dealt with people, especially throughout the Old Testament, I don't think this angel's looking for uh, information, is he? You know, he's not turning to John and saying, hey, give me an idea who these people are. I don't have a clue who they are. That's not happening, right? You know, that God shows up in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and he goes to Adam and Eve, and he says, why'd you hide yourself? Did he not know? Of course he knew. He's asking the question because they needed to know what had happened with their relationship. So, so I get that this messenger saying to John, hey, uh, who are these people? Maybe trying to get John to know what's going on, but John doesn't answer it that way. What he answers is, sir, you know, which the point he's making is they both know who they are. So if they both know who they are, then why does the angel ask him about it? Who else needs to know who they are? Yeah, yeah. I would say we, but most specifically, whoever was the original recipient of this book needed to know. You know why? Well, let's go all the way back to the question. If the people from the fifth seal who were under the altar are crying out, they're the, they're the ones who have already died for their faith, right? And they're under the altar, and they're crying out, how long? And then chapter 6 says, okay, judgment's going to come on Rome. And so all of a sudden, everybody looks around and says, well, who's going to survive it? If the people that are already there in eternity are asking who's going to survive it, what are the people on earth thinking? I mean, that's a different perspective, isn't it? When you're talking about somebody who's already passed into eternity, they're not limited by time anymore, are they? But we still are here, right? So if they're questioning it, what do you think the people here are questioning? And so the point of this, this, this parentheses of chapter 7 is to answer the question, who's going to be able to stand and give the information that will be an encouragement to those who are on the earth who get the mark, who know, you know, he, he knows who they are. Even that doesn't mean they're going to live through it, does it? But yet even if they don't live through it, they still are victorious because they belong to him. And in fact, the wording here, and I want to highlight again, I try not to get so stuck on the error that people use from this book, but I want to highlight it again in our time frame. These are those who came out of the great tribulation. See, there you have it. There you have the doctrine that's taught today in the religious world that says one of these days Jesus is going to return and take everybody away who's faithful to him, and everybody who stays is going to go through the tribulation. Well, that's a lie. This is where it comes from, part of it, but that's still a lie for many reasons. One of them is timing. Rome is still alive and well when this chapter is written, isn't it? When this vision is seen. So you got a timing problem, first off. Second of all, the people who, have, who he sees here, who are in their reward, are people who came out of it. They lived and died through this terrible tribulation that Rome was bringing on them. Well, if God takes all the good people away, who's here to live and die through it? Not the good people, right? If he takes all the good people away, they're not left here, are they? Okay, so that's not what this is teaching. What this is teaching is these are people who suffered at the hands of Rome, and they died for their faith, and guess what? God rewarded them, and guess what he did? He wiped away every tear. So you think... Well, when you're suffering here, that's when the tears flow, right? When you think about 
the struggles here, that's when the tears flow. When you think about the persecution, when somebody's watching their family die at the hands of Rome or they're facing it, that's when the tears flow, right? So how do you get rid of all that? Well, you can't. But God can, can't he? So this is encouragement for them to stay faithful no matter what. All right, chapter 8. This first part of this chapter is my favorite part. I mean, that is proof of that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about... It was definitely a problem in Corinth that Paul had to explain, yeah. Yeah. All right, chapter 8. Now the parentheses is over. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets... Another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now, the reason that's my favorite part here is because just kind of the overall picture of what's happening here. It's not individual details. It's the overall picture. Here's what we're reading about. You know, when you look at uh, when you look through the scriptures and you talk about what's happening in heaven as it relates to what's happening on earth, what we think about heaven interrupts earth, right? Like the day the sun stood still, so they could have this battle. Heaven stopped earth, right? Like the day that Hezekiah was given 15 more years to his life, heaven interrupted earth, right? When Jesus shows up and he had his death and we have darkness in the middle of the day and we have the earthquake and the dead bodies, that's heaven interrupting earth, right? Yet what we read about here in, in chapter 8, with everything that we read up to this point from chapter 4 about what's happening up there. You know, we've got these four living creatures, we've got the 24 thrones, we have innumerable angels and a great multitude that nobody can number around the throne. I mean, that's a huge crowd, right? And they're all praising and worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. We're not, talk, we're not reading about a, you know, everybody laying back in their Zen state, relaxing, right? We're reading about worship. And then all of a sudden you get to chapter 8 and all that stops. All of it stops. And there's silence. And you answer the question of why by reading through verse 4 there. And the answer is, because people on earth are praying. This angel, now you've got seven angels there that's got the trumpets, right? And they're about to sound off, but there's another angel. And this other angel has, has the altar, which is the worship offered to God, and the prayers mixed together. And he takes that mixed together and casts it to the earth. So this is God listening to the prayers of the saints on the earth and answering. So these seven trumpets that are about to sound are the answer to the prayers of saints. You think God hears you? Now he doesn't he doesn't always answer the way we want him to answer. He doesn't always answer when we want him to answer, but he does hear and answer, doesn't he? And so that's this message of you know, I don't know. There are people here at the end of the first century that I, I would have to assume, this is just an assumption, but I think it's a safe one. Uh, there are people who were born uh, after the persecution that Nero started began, who are still alive when John writes this letter, 
I mean, John was born before that. He's still alive. But I'm saying there are people that were born after that and are still alive. So their whole life has been spent under the persecution of Rome, right? They've, they've seen that their whole life. You start to say, you start to wonder if God's listening. Maybe. When it doesn't go the way that you think it ought to go or when it takes too long. And so what this, this message is, before these trumpets sound, which I'll tell you about those in just a second, is the reason they're going to sound is because God heard their prayers and he answered them. Now, the seven trumpets, before we read them, this is different than the seals. Go ahead. No. Yes, yes, you can ask. <laughs> the great multitude? Uh, I don't know that we can answer that with certainty. I would assume that, yes, because of Luke chapter 16. Yeah. And, the, and because the new heaven and the new earth doesn't come until later on in the book of Revelation. So, yes, that would be my assumption, yes. Okay, now the trumpets. They are in answer to the prayers of the saints. They are judgments brought against the nation of Rome, but they're not complete. What they are is partial. Every one of them. All seven of the trumpets are partial. Well, six partial, and then you get to the seventh, and the seven reveals the bowls of wrath. The bowls of wrath are full. Now, we'll see why once we get there. But the point that's being made in these seven trumpets is God is still... Uh, this is an incredible display of God's patience and his mercy. As far as Rome has gone, and as, as much damage as Rome has done to Christianity, he's still offering them the chance to repent. When you get to the end of the sixth seal, or the sixth trumpet, that's what he says. Nobody would... Yeah, my battery's dead. It, it always goes bad during, dead during class. I know it is right now, but there's a little red light that says low. Okay, I'm back. All right, now we got these three. Don't hook those up to me. All right, let's start with the trumpets. Chapter 8, verse 6. Oh, wait. <laughs> I always think of stuff after I start to read. Uh, do you think that governments affect nature? Do governments affect nature? Uh-huh. I'll give you an example. Uh, you go south from the United States, well, from Florida, and you get to Cuba, right? You go east from Cuba, what do you get to? What island is it? Hispaniola. There are two nations on the island. Haiti's on the west. Dominican Republic's on the east. Now, I know it's not been great in the news lately, but the Dominican Republic is a pretty wealthy as far as Caribbean nations go, a pretty wealthy nation, the government of or the land of Haiti is one of the poorest in all of the world on the same island. And it's not that big an island. Why is it like that? Because the government, the way the government's reacted on the Haiti side of things, they 
They lost all their vegetation, all their trees, and now they get mudslides and everything else that goes with it, and the Dominican Republic didn't do that. Now, I'm not into politics, and I'm not certainly not into their politics. I'm just telling you governments can affect nature, okay? These first trumpets are about nature. The, the actions of Rome brought consequences, and the consequences that it brought by God's providence actually came through nature. Keep reading, or start reading, verse, verse 8. Uh, six. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, I don't, I don't obviously know the answer of all the things about the blood and everything, but here's what I know: when he starts talking about things of the earth like trees and grass and all of that being burned up, what he's talking about is famine. He's talking about crop failures and things like that. So the policies of Rome, you know, what were the emperors about? Were they all about the people? No. No, they're about themselves, right? So the government that got fat feeding off of what the people had cut their own throats. And all of a sudden you've got economic collapse, and this is not economic here. It's, it's famine related, but all your crops are starting to fail. How do you keep getting fat, and how's the nation endure when they've got to keep pumping it up to you? Yeah. Look at the next one, verse 8. Second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So now you've got commerce. And the interesting thing is, what's, what's cast in was a mountain. And as you go back through the Old Testament, the mountain always represented some kind of government. So the government is cutting their own throat. When you look at Rome... Historically, it's not, there's not that many nations throughout the history of the world that have, that have existed the way that Rome existed. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you read about the power changes throughout time, you read about power, right? You read about the Assyrians and their great power over the world, and then all of a sudden the Babylonians are stronger, so they beat them, Right? And then the Medes and Persians are stronger, so in battle, they beat them. And then the Greeks are stronger, and then the Romans are stronger. But who beat the Romans? Yeah, see, Rome didn't, lie, didn't, uh, didn't fall like these other nations did. They crumbled. Now, they had enemies. And we'll read in a minute about some enemies attacking, but they were not defeated by their enemies. They were defeated by the consequences of their own actions. So right here in the beginning, we have a famine starting to happen. We have... The commerce is being destroyed, verse 10. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. What's a star in Revelation? It's a messenger. It's a messenger. The ones that were in the hands of Jesus were the messenger to the churches, right? Okay, so this is a messenger. Fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers, on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and... Many men died from the water because it, made, it was made bitter. Wormwood actually means bitter. So now you got drought. So the crops aren't producing. And then you don't have water for the crops. Not only that, but you don't have water for the people. Does that ever happen as a consequence of the actions of government? Go to Flint, Michigan. Ask them. Ask them about water. Keep reading. Twelve. 
The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Now, we've been reading about sun, moon, and stars, and they were talking about people that ruled in governments, right? Okay, so, and I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet, and of the three angels who are about to sound. Okay, when the people get mad because we've, we're having famine and we're having drought and we're having commerce being destroyed, who do they go to? Who do they blame? Government. Right or wrong? That's who they got to blame, right? Which they were right in this case. But all of a sudden the government starts to suffer the consequences too. At first it's just the people. But now this angel, when this seal is open or read this trumpet blows, now this angel shows up and says, he makes a statement. This is, about, this is not about something happening. He watches what's happening, and then he makes a statement. And what he makes a statement about is what's coming. You think it's bad? You think it's bad living in a place where we've got drought and famine and we're, you know, the economy's bad and all that? You think that's bad? Guess what? Everything up to this point has been on nature. From this point forward, it's going to be on people. The wicked are going to suffer. Keep going. Have you seen how it's all partial? It's always a third, Right? Okay, chapter 9. And the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now I want to stop there. That's not the end, but I want to stop there. Because uh, I don't know how many different versions of the Bible that we use here. Uh, I know, I don't like, I, I usually like the translation of the King James Version. I definitely like the New King James. That's what I most often use. I like the ESV. I uh, don't use it very often because almost nobody has it. But uh, I, I usually do like the old King James, not only because of its writing style, but because of its accuracy. But I have a problem with the way this word is translated here in chapter 9 and verse 1. Uh, if you have the old King James, it says that, this, that what John saw was a star that did what? As it fell or a star, star fall from heaven. That's the wrong, wrong word. That's the wrong translation here. And most of the other translations get this, what I believe is accurate. And that is a star that had fallen. There's a difference. If you look at this and you see John seeing a picture of a star falling, then all of a sudden you start making up things like, well, in the Old Testament, didn't we read about Satan and he fell from heaven and, this is, and Lucifer and he was talking about the leader of, of uh, uh, Babylon as he fell. And so... You start reading about the star, you say, he saw Satan fall. That's not what we're reading about here. What we're reading about, he saw one who had fallen. Now, we'll find out later in this book what Satan is represented by in the book, and it's not a star. A star was a messenger, right? Yet, to only find out later on in this book and in other places that hell is actually a place that wasn't actually, wasn't actually created for you and me. It wasn't created for man at all. Now, that's where wicked people go. That's where those without the blood of Jesus go for eternity, but that's not what it was created for. It was created for the devil and his angels. He has messengers too, doesn't he? So what we're reading about here is the workings of the devil. What John sees is a messenger who is one of the messengers of Satan, one of the fallen angels, if you will. So he's got providence too. And isn't that interesting? If you go all the way back to Luke chapter 4, after the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus goes out of the wilderness to be tempted, one of the temptations offered him was Satan raises him up so he can see all the kingdoms of the world, and he says to him, I give you all these things. Could he give them to him if he didn't have them? 
See, the devil does have some providence that works in kingdoms, right? And he worked in Rome. So all of a sudden, in this trumpet, John sees one of the devil's messengers, if you will. And he had a key to a bottomless pit. Now, we've got to figure out what that is just a minute. Well, let's read further before we go to it. Because what I want to look at it and think is that's got to be hell, right? Right? Don't be afraid to... Okay. Did that scare you? Okay. Okay. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke... Locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. So you got smoke coming out of this pit. Still sounds like hell, right? Then you got all these locusts coming out of this pit. Now, that doesn't sound like hell, but at least you could connect it some way, right? So locusts, well, let's keep reading. Verse 4. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree. Wait a second. Isn't that what locusts eat? So... Must not be real locusts then. Because they've been given a command not to... Okay, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You remember the account of Job? When Job, when Satan's standing before God and making accusations, and he says, only reason he's worshiping you is because you protect him and all that, and God says, you do whatever you want to do, don't take his life. First, don't hurt him, then don't take his life. He was restricted, wasn't he? Okay, the point here is, these messengers are providence, if you will, of Satan is restricted. And what's it restricted to? The people that didn't get the mark in chapter 7. The people that don't belong to God. They're going to suffer at the hands of Rome. Well, wait a second. If Christians are living under Rome and they get the same economy and they get the same food, and all, they're not going to suffer? Oh, but that suffering's different. Yeah, that's that part that Paul talks about that I bring up a whole lot about the peace that passeth understanding. If you're suffering from a disease and I'm suffering from a disease and you're a Christian and I'm not, we're going to suffer through it differently. Because one of us is going to have hope beyond it. The other one doesn't. That's why this is different. Verse 5. I hadn't forgot all those hanging questions I left you with in the early parts, but I've got to keep going to bring them together. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them. For five months, and the number five is a short but definite period of time, right? So this they're going to be this is going to happen. It's going to happen not forever, but it's definitely going to happen for a period of time. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Doesn't that sound awesome? And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. And the shape of the locust was like a horse. They're fast prepared for battle, and on their heads were crowns. They're powerful. And something like gold, and their faces were like, uh uh-oh. What? Yeah, what came out of that pit wasn't locusts. When you read the four living creatures around the throne, remember they represented wild animals, domesticated animals, flying animals, and man. And the one that represented man was the face of a man, right? Okay, what you're reading about is Rome is a bottomless pit. They cannot be satisfied. And the corruption is right in the middle of it. 
And so this smoke that comes out of the fire is their corruption, but the locusts are the corrupted people that control it. And so when Rome starts to falter, the people blame the government. What's the government do? Does the government say, well, let me ask you it this way. Let me back up and give you an account, and we'll stop with this. So Solomon. Solomon reigns for 40 years after Saul and David, right? And, it, and he has an incredibly prosperous reign, by the way. He made some terrible mistakes, but... The nation really prospered greatly under Solomon. So then his son, Rehoboam, after the death of Solomon, has the chance to become the next king. He's going to become the next king, right? Except for one problem. His advisors came to him and said, look, we're prospering, uh, but the people are really un... They're not settled right now. They're unsettled, and so what you need to do is you need to back off a little bit. Your dad was a little too hard. You need to back off just a little bit. All right, that's the old wise counsel that gave him that. What do the young guys say? No chance. You've got to be worse than your dad, harder than your dad, and the nation splits, right? Okay, when the government sees the people suffering most, if it's a corrupt government, they don't look at them and say, oh, we've got we've to cut our benefits so we can help the people out there on the street. No, They're gonna, those people are going to hurt worse to make sure I don't hurt, right? So this corruption that comes out of this pit is, is the corruption of Rome and its leaders itself. And what they do is they go out and make things even harder on the people. They don't, when the nation is crumbling, they don't take less. They've got to endure. They take more from the people. Okay, we're out of time, so we've got to pick up there on, again on Wednesday night. Let's, uh, let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight to study your word, and we're so thankful for this message that reminds us continually that uh, you are victorious over all things. We pray, Father, that we'll have the courage at all times to walk with you and to trust in you and not, not in ourselves. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.